Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Intellectual Agrarian Podcast. I'm your host, Terrence Lakehew. Today's guest is John Musco, the Executive Director of MOSES, Midwest Organic Sustainable Agriculture Education Service. And together, we'll talk about what MOSES does, how John started in agriculture, the breed of cattle he raises, and what has become my pet question, what does he think of the Amazon Whole Foods deal? This and so much more, so stay tuned. John, welcome to the show. Thank you, Terrence. I'm glad to be a part of it. So before we get too far down the road, can we start by hearing a little bit about who Moses is and what it does? Moses is the Midwest Organic and Sustainable Education Service. Uh, We're a nonprofit organization, and we help farmers start and grow their organic farming businesses. We put on a number of educational programs, and we're probably best known for the Moses Organic Farming Conference, which is held every year the last weekend in February in La Crosse, Wisconsin, and we draw somewhere between three and 3,500 people. And one of those 3,500 people is me, and I always enjoy going. It's a great time. <laughs> it is. It's the community coming together around organic and sustainable agriculture, um, farmers, beginning farmers, uh, exhibitors that are part of this, the organic farming support network, and uh, it's a great place to connect. Absolutely. So what was it that got you involved in agriculture? I grew up on a farm. Uh, We had a diversified family farm. Um, We had dairy cows, we had hogs, beef cattle. Uh, I was given responsibility at a very young age. And I think when I look back on my life, uh, it was probably what got me hooked. I was more than labor on the farm uh, from as early as uh, eight or nine years old. I had my own enterprises uh, raising Uh, hogs and selling feeder pigs uh, and was given a lot of responsibility uh, for managing the farm when my dad was working off the farm. And by the time I was in high school, I was providing all of the, all of the labor and a good bit of the management. And uh, for me, that was thrilling and challenging. Absolutely. It's amazing what difference that can make as getting the responsibility at a young age. It's one of the best things Mm -hmm. about farming, in my opinion. It is. It is. It's, it's, uh, it was what uh, got me hooked. Uh, I, however, left the farm in the eighties when I graduated from high school at a time when agriculture was struggling across the board, not only farms, but the ag um, jobs in the ag sector were, were declining as well. So it was a challenging time to want to get into farming, and I didn't. I, I worked in uh, a number of different uh, uh, ag support roles over the years before we actually started farming. So speaking of one of those ag support roles, you were involved in biotechnology research. What caused your interest to go more into the sustainable route? Well, there were a number of things that came together all at the same time. Uh, Probably the, the, the biggest factor was that uh, some, of the, some of the targets of the biotech research uh, were for things that I thought were not very helpful. 
Uh, in fact, there were some things that I thought would be very harmful to agriculture and to the human race. One in particular, the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak, was uh, some uh, genetic modifications that were introduced into our, or that were part of our uh, development process that were developing an anti-sperm gene, and that was going to put, be put into corn, and it, it was put into corn. And when I learned of that, I, I didn't feel like I could continue to give my energy and effort into that industry, and so I left. Wow. Wow. It's amazing what they yeah. do to our food these days. <laughs> it is. It is. And uh, I think, uh, you know, I don't want to say that there's anti-sperm genes in our food. I'm not I'm trying to say that, but it's, it's pretty clear that uh, the potential for long-term negative effects is there. Wow. And, uh, and I, I, couldn't, I couldn't give of my time to that. Good transition. Good transition. <laughs> so before you started with Moses, you were working for the Sustainable Farming Association. What did you do there? I was the executive director uh, as well there. It's an organization that is based primarily in Minnesota, but does work in the neighboring states as well. And it's focused on developing regional chapters of folks that are working towards sustainability and organic farming as well. And so it's a member-based organization, which has as its mission uh, to support through farmer-to-farmer networking the advancement of sustainable agriculture. Awesome. So in your current free time, which probably is rather limited, you still raise beef cattle, right? We do. We, uh, we have a farm in East Central Minnesota where we raise grass-fed beef. We have uh, a small herd of Hereford cattle. And uh, these, these cattle are, in our opinion, uh, perfectly designed for grass-based, um, grass, 100% grass-fed beef production. Um, a friend told me at one time when we first got started, he said, they'll get fat in a gravel pit. <laughs> and uh, I, think what, I think what he was saying was that they were, they're very efficient and can make the best use of uh, a challenging environment. Uh, they are very hardy and healthy, and weather is something that just doesn't bother them. But for us, the, 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 um, the main draw to that breed was, at the time, that they're so gentle in their nature. Uh, when we started farming, our children were small. And, and we didn't have any infrastructure at all. We had uh, no fences, no gates, no corrals, nothing like that. So we needed cattle that could be handled um, uh, easily. And so the Herefords were rose to the top of the list. We had different breeds throughout the years as well um, to, to supplement our, our market. But uh, over time, we eliminated those and stuck with just Herefords. Mm-hmm. An excellent breed. So what is it you enjoy about farm life? This is kind of a fluff question, but is kind of a real question at the same time. <laughs> well, farming is, is both challenging and rewarding, I think. Uh, uh, 
what I enjoy about it is the entrepreneurial opportunities. So in farming, especially in today's farming world, where if you want to get started in farming or you want to expand your farm operation, it's very challenging um, to to obtain additional acres or uh, even animals or uh, a business model or, or a business a marketing operation. It's all very very challenging. There's a lot of competition, and uh, th- there are fewer and fewer people who are coming from a history of agriculture. So uh, the, it's going to go to those who have an entrepreneurial mindset and spirit, and I enjoy that. And it's the um, it's probably what I enjoy most, but it's also the most difficult. <laughs> um, you know, in, in, in the old days, uh, when I grew up, um, if you had uh, hogs that were ready for market, you simply called a trucker and loaded them on, and they were gone. And, and, and if you had corn that was ready for market, you called a trucker, and you loaded it up, and it was gone. Um, and, of course, that still happens in, in most of agriculture today. But for the emerging uh, moderate-scale farmer uh, that is trying to establish a sustainable farm business for multiple generations, there's going to have to be some self-marketing. There's going to have to be some new uh, channels, marketing channels developed. Mm-hmm. And the most successful folks at that are going to be the ones who who are able to navigate that, in, in some cases, blindly, without a model, without a plan, without somebody showing them how to do it. And that's where resources like the Moses Conference can be invaluable. Well, I think so. I mean, for a number of reasons, we have programs that uh, educational programs that are offered there that help that, but also the, just the networking with other mm-hmm. folks that are doing it uh, is, is critical. Yeah, that was one of the things when I first started getting into this business that we went to the Moses Conference and I went into it knowing very little and I left knowing at least a little bit more. And more importantly, I met a lot of people that over the years have helped me learn more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the, um, we did a number of research. Uh, we, did, we did research a number of years ago when I was at the Sustainable Farming Association about what makes a successful, what, what makes a new farm successful or, or what causes a new farm to not be successful. And what we found is that those farms that are the most successful uh, five to seven years into their business are those that have developed a network of trusted advisors and trusted critics who could uh, give support, but also who could say to new farmers, what you're doing right now is not going to work. You need to stop (laughs) or you need to change. Um, And and that's very important. The network is essential. Mm Mm-hmm. It's very important to have someone to tell you to stop because when you're right there on the ground, you're doing it, you think, but this is going to work. This is perfect. This is fine. Mm -hmm. Only to realize afterwards, boy, that was a big mistake. Right. And sometimes it takes someone experienced to say, you know, you really need to stop now because every extra ounce of energy you put into it from this point forward is going to have negative return rather than zero. Mm -hmm. Uh, And (laughs) And that's what causes people to get so far in sometimes, and then they can't get back out. They, they can't recover. And, uh, and and a network is useful for that. Now, we touched on earlier uh, in this entrepreneurial spirit and how 
now farmers are doing a lot more self-marketing, looking for new avenues. This is a question I didn't exactly ask ahead of time, but it's become my pet question ever since it was announced. What do you think that this Whole Foods Amazon deal means for these entrepreneurial farmers? Mm. Well, I think it's it's a couple of things. Uh, first of all, we're talking about a, a $13, 14000000000 billion acquisition. And this is a part of a larger recognition uh, that traditional large corporate-type business sees um, to the value of organic and sustainable food, uh, organic and sustainable farming practices, across the board. So, so, you know, in, in, in the alternative ag world, let's just use the, the broad brush. Yeah. Uh, we've, we've been pretty isolated. Um, you know, many opponents of organic agriculture would say, well, you can't feed the world. So you guys are just small operators. It's, uh, you're, you're not, uh, you're not that important. Well, well, clearly, um, the the economies of scale and the market has recognized the value of of farming practices that produce food in a certain way and farming practices that impact the environment in a certain way, and that's not going to change. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when you see these kinds of acquisitions or some of the other things uh, that we've seen in, in the recent months where General Mills has forged alliances with several in the organic and sustainable farming community where they're lining up their sources for ingredients to, to manufacture their certified organic food items, this is a recognition of of what we in the organic and sustainable ag community have been working for for a long time. Mm-hmm. What's the challenge now is that we have, um, you know, be careful what you wish for. Yeah. <laughs> so, so now uh, there are many who, and, and I, and I think as a community we're divided or, or not really divided, but we're undecided mm-hmm. as to how we like that. So now organic is not niche um, anymore. It's big and it's big business and it's, it's large scale and it's, you know, becoming a little bit more of a commodity. And and so that has often some unintended consequences that pop up. So it's going to be interesting to see how, um, different types of folks within the community feel about this and, and what happens over time. I suspect that, um, when, when the forces, when the market forces uh, get a hold of an opportunity, they they move forward into it and, to maximize it, and that's that's what we're going to see. I think as uh, more businesses follow the, the the leadership or the decision making that Amazon has made, and so I think that's one part of it. Another part of it is that Amazon has a very interesting business model that no one else has been able to to match uh, in in the same way. So uh, here in the Twin Cities, uh, where, where we live, Amazon has a distribution center. And if you want to order something from Amazon at 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning, they can deliver to you by noon. Uh, they have their own fleet of delivery vehicles. 
and they have a distribution center right here. So depending on where you're located and what the item is, you could have it in an hour. Um, that's a real game changer. And mm-hmm. if they're going to be able to do food that way, uh, that's going to change the whole landscape of how we not only buy food, but, but everything. And, yeah. um, uh, so, so Amazon is, is a, is a game changing, uh, business because of, of how they've been able to, um, uh, gain control of, of the delivery of items to people's houses. And, and that could be, that could change dramatically in the years to come. Um, we'll see what happens with that. I just finished rereading the book on Amazon, Jeff Bezos and the everything store. And really, as mm-hmm. you say, they mastered the art of delivery. And I think that's mm-hmm. going to be what makes this change I, I look forward to seeing what happens. As of this recording, we have no details, but I'm just looking forward to seeing what happens. It's going to be an interesting study. Well, I think so too. And and you know, uh, it's easy to make predictions when when your your livelihood doesn't depend on it. But yes, I think that you know, there's one there's there's one organization that is out there that and that is better than Amazon at mm-hmm. this, and that's the U.S. Postal Service. Um, and we always like to make jokes about the post office and everybody likes to, to tease. Um, but the reality is that the, the U S postal service, um, makes a stop at essentially every single household in the country six days a week. I never uh, thought of it that way. And, and in fact, uh, we in the Twin Cities, we get we get deliveries on Sundays, and what are they delivering? They're delivering Amazon on Sunday. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, the U.S. Postal Service, uh, if you think about the fact that for fifty cents, roughly, uh, you can buy a ticket to put your item into that mail stream, and it it just magically arrives. And and some people in town have their mailbox right next to their door <laughs> you don't even have to go outside you just stick your arm out and put put the letter in the in the box and your your recipient does the same thing and and you have this this amazing delivery service and uh to the degree that the postal service desires to leverage that um it could be very interesting to see where this goes because amazon is not going to go away. Amazon is going to continue to grow and continue to deliver more and more types of products. You know, back in the day it was books and it didn't take very long before. Now you can purchase pretty much anything now with whole foods. What can you not buy through Amazon? Mm-hmm. There's very little. And so, um, could Amazon buy the U S postal service? or its uh, technology, or its ability to do what is really phenomenal, visit everybody's house every day, um, that's, that would be very dramatic. It uh, would be. And I, yeah, yeah, and I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know that it would happen, but um, you know, Postal Service is continuing to lose money, and, and um, I think it's a question of how long how long will they continue to do that if, if, if taxpayers are comfortable on an annual basis subsidizing the Postal Service to continue to do that, then that's fine, I guess. But 
as the as the volume of first class mail continues to drop, um, the postal service is going to have to do other things uh, in order to justify its existence. And so there there could be something happening in in the next twenty years that twenty years ago we never would have imagined. We certainly live in interesting times. I- <laughs> that these are the conversations we have. It's great. I love it. So, yeah. in pure speculation, where do you see organic farming going in the next couple of years? Well, I think, you know, organic agriculture is going to continue to grow to meet the demand. And there's not enough supply of organic food to meet the demand. There's not enough supply of organic beef or pork or, or really any of the foodstuffs that, that are grown organically. Uh, so it's going to continue to grow and scale and in individual farm sizes are going to grow. We're going to see more and more things being offered as organic. Um, so I think that uh, the, the desire that the public has to uh, purchase certified organic items, food items, clothing items, uh, items of everyday use that are uh, produced on farms, uh, I think is going to continue to grow. So uh, it's a great time to be uh, farming organically and to be thinking about products that people want to buy organically because it's it's not going to stop either. It's going to continue to grow. Do you think there are any significant hurdles that sustainable agriculture is going to face in the next couple of years? Or... Well... There are, that's interesting because sustainable agriculture, the, the word sustainable, everybody is using it now, not just mm-hmm. in agriculture, but uh, in every, in every facet of our, of our society. And there is no such thing as something that is completely sustainable. Even a grandfather clock has to be wound once in a while. Uh, there's nothing that runs without um, deteriorating. It's, it's just, it's the, you know, the second law of thermodynamics. I was just about to say that. <laughs> Someone else so, knows it. <laughs> so there, there's nothing that is 100% sustainable, but we are always moving. We, we always want to move towards sustainability. And as more and more uh, farmers and, and others move into sustainable agriculture, the, those of us that are truly moving towards sustainability, we need to be clear about what we're doing and how we're doing it. Because many that call themselves sustainable ag uh, businesses or sustainable farmers are mainly focusing on just one aspect of sustainability, which is financial sustainability. Meaning, well, if I'm in business tomorrow to continue doing what I did today, I must be sustainable we're in this business. So, you know, we, we, we farmed last year, we're farming next year, we're sustainable. And that's just, that's, that's one piece of it, but it's just one piece of it. Uh, and we cannot, we cannot in sustainable agriculture or any sustainable, um, entity or, or business within society, we cannot simply rest on that. We have to say, well, okay, great. What is the impact that you're having on the the environment? What is the impact you're having on human resources, what is the impact you're having on your neighbors uh, mm-hmm. and, and your community? Is your community thriving? Is your community growing? And in fact, 
the USDA, in its definition of sustainable agriculture that was laid down in the 1990 Farm Bill, says that sustainable agriculture is a system of production that enhances the natural resources uh, that food production depends on, not just maintains. So sustainable agriculture is not just maintaining, it's making things better. And I think that's very important to keep in mind. So, so as more and more people call themselves sustainable, those of us who, who truly are or who really understand it are going to have to continue to be very clear about the distinctions. Mm-hmm. And the definitions. And that's an mm-hmm. interesting way of looking at it. My father, I come from a large family, and my family, my parents have always noticed that especially in the organic sustainable movement, while you don't always see it, there are a lot of people having larger families, which is great to see Mm -hmm. because if you want a farm, which is generational to be truly sustainable, you need that second, third and fourth generation to take it on. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Now, thanks so much for being on the show, John. Is there anything that you'd like to share with the audience as we wrap up? Well, I certainly appreciate it, Terrence, and I, I thank you for your work that you're doing. I thank you for uh, this podcast and for you injecting your voice into the into the discussion. I think it's really, really important. And uh, I would just invite your listeners to, to check out our website, mosesorganic.org, and learn about the different uh, uh, events that we're hosting. We've got a number of field days this summer and also discussion around the upcoming conference in February. And we'd love to see you again there, as well as some of your listeners. Well, thank you very much again for being on the show. I hope we can have you again sometime. Thank you very much. It'll be my pleasure. Great to have John on the show today. Take a look at the links for Moses in the description below. There you'll find the links for their website, social media, and the Moses Farming Conference. If you've enjoyed today's program, subscribe to our podcast and whatever listening medium you use. And leave a nice review, because you enjoy it. Follow our social media in the links below. As always, I'm Terrence Lehew. This has been the Intellectual Agrarian Podcast, reminding you to keep farming the dream. <laughs>